Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we began a series of messages on the book of Romans, and we saw in verse 1, as you can see there in the very first phrases, that Paul, the author, is a servant of Christ Jesus. And I argued that that meant, among other things, he was bought by Christ, he was owned by Christ, and he was ruled by Christ, and, as we saw in Galatians One, he pleases Christ alone. He tries to please Christ and not people. I want to qualify something, lest at the very outset here we skew the whole meaning of the book of Romans with a misunderstanding about the nature of apostolic servanthood or Christian servanthood. One of the great advantages to preaching through the book of Romans when you're 52 and you've been a Christian for 46 years is that you've read it before and you know what's at the end, which helps you understand the beginning. The author has a great advantage over the reader in that the author knows where he's going when he writes the first sentence, and so there's meaning in it that comes later, and we have to wait until we get later, then back up, reread the first verse, and learn a little more. So we go in circles, and he goes in a straight line. That's okay. So, I've read verse 18 of chapter 15. I'll read it to you. Paul says... I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So here's my connection of that with verse 1. Paul serves Christ Jesus in the power with which he is served by Christ Jesus. I'll say it again. Paul serves Christ Jesus. He's a bondservant. He serves Christ Jesus in the power with which Christ Jesus serves him. So that 
Christ gets the glory here for this service, not Paul. If you get it backwards and you say that Paul is the initiating force in this service to Christ, Paul's going to get the glory. Christ will be the poor beneficiary of this benefactor apostle. And that will skew the meaning of the whole book. From him and through him and to him are all things. That verse 36 of chapter 11 is going to come back over and over and over again in this series for the next two or three or five or ten years or whatever. Qualification then for last Sunday. Now, the next phrase was that he's called this all-supplying Christ calls him to be an apostle. We looked at that one. The next phrase, he was set apart. We saw from Galatians that happened before he was born for the gospel of God. And now we're ready today, I hope, to pick up the phrase gospel of God. So I want to talk about the gospel of God in as much as verses 2 through 4 talk about it. The whole book is about the gospel of God. But verses 2, 3, and 4 tell you what Paul wants to say first about the gospel of God. And there are at least four things that I'm going to draw out here. And so to get a banner over the whole thing or a a title over the whole thing, it would be what's good news about the gospel of God? Why is it gospel? Why is it good news? The first thing he says is that it's a planned Gospel, verse 2, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he, that is God, promised beforehand. So one of the first things he chooses to say is he thought this up a long time ago and said it was coming, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now let me make three observations about that verse 2. The plannedness of the gospel. The first thing is that Christianity, the gospel, is not a new religion. It's the fulfillment of an old religion. That's why we have a thick Bible. We have two testaments. Not just one testament. This old part is true, we'll see that more in a minute, and the new part about Christ finishes it, fulfills it, makes it complete and whole. Christianity is a promised religion, and it grows out naturally from Judaism. And one of the great burdens of our lives should be to pray Jewish people into the completion of their own faith. We don't ask them to change religions. I mean, they would say we do. I know that that when Jews for Jesus do their job the way they ought to do, they stir up a lot of animosity. And and if you put up signs, completed Jew, the folks over at Temple Israel will go ballistic and be very upset. But that's true. We are not a new religion on the scene. We are a completion a fulfillment of long-expected promises and hopes that God had held out among the Jewish people. In fact, we think of ourselves as Jewish people. We are Jewish people. 
True Jews, Paul says in chapter 2 of this book. We'll see more of that later. That's the first point. The second thing in verse 2 is that God keeps his promises. In other words, verse 2 is not just telling us the source of the gospel, but some warrant for the gospel. If you say, what evidences are there for the truth of the gospel? One answer to that is, it was promised hundreds of years before in many and various ways, and now has been fulfilled in detailed ways. And way back, you remember in the message on Palm Sunday, I unfolded many of those ways that the Old Testament is fulfilled in the new. And the point is, God is faithful. He's reliable. He can be trusted. In the gospel, he makes many new promises. Will we believe them? And we can look back and say, but look, he made promises in Isaiah 53 in detail about the way it would be with the Messiah when he comes. And they happened. If he's now made promises for you and me, they're going to happen. And so there's a warranting of faith as well as the source of faith in verse 2. The third observation in verse 2 is that there are inspired writings called scriptures that we ought to reverence and believe. Now I want you to see this because this has a very large bearing on why I'm preaching from Romans and why I preach the way I preach and why you do fighter verses and have devotions and become Bible people. Look at this. Notice the pieces. There's God in verse 2. There's a promise that he wills to communicate. There are prophets through whom, notice the word through, it doesn't say by. This is very important. Through whom. So they become channels through which God speaks, and then the speaking terminates on a book, writings, scriptures, and they're called holy. So let's make sure you see the pieces. God starts it all. He's got a word he wants to speak of promise. He does it through prophets. It gets deposited in scriptures, and they are now called holy. And the reason Keith said, I presume, when he announced the text, it is from the Holy Bible, is because he was in the first service. And I asked the people, why do we have on the spine of our Bibles, or on the front, Holy Bible? Holy Bible. The answer to that question is Romans 1, verse 2. Holy Scriptures. You see the phrase? Holy Scriptures. They are holy, that is, they are unique, they are set apart, they are unlike all other writings. They are precious, that's what holy means. Pure, precious, set apart, valuable, one of a kind, nothing like them, any other book, because they're from God. God promised through prophets in Writings. So leave out the channel for a minute and just say, God promised in writings. This is God's word. This is inspired. That's really crucial. And the immediate relevance that it has for us, preaching from Romans, who was written by Paul, not one of the Old Testament, 
prophets is that Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. And we saw last week that an apostle is an authoritative, commissioned spokesman of the risen Christ upon which the church is being built. Ephesians 2.20, it is being built on the apostles and prophets. So Paul saw himself alongside the prophets as the same kind of spokesman for the New Testament church as the prophets were for the Old Testament church. That's why Romans is important. Or, to put it another way, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, we apostles, we speak not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. This book called Romans is a Spirit-taught book, not a man-wrought book. That's why I preach from it. That's why I preach the way I preach. That's why I'm in people's face with its truth. That's why I really don't care. And I stopped here in the first service and qualified this, but I'll I'll finish the sentence anyway. I really don't care whether you like it or not. Now, what I mean by that is, if you say to me, I don't like that verse, I won't change the verse for you. But what I don't mean when I say, I don't care if you don't like it, what I don't mean by that is, it would grieve me if you said, I don't like that verse, and I'm out of here on your gospel. That would make me sad. I wouldn't be indifferent to that. I would pray about that. I would want a different response than that. Or a third way Paul is shown to be an authoritative, inspired spokesman is 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter says that some people distort Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. Peter puts Paul's writings in the same category as Romans 1-2, the Holy Scriptures. It is a big deal to believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's what our church is built on. I told you last week, I did in one service, and I don't remember which service it was, that I was going to tell you a funny story this week, so I brought along the story. W.A. Criswell was the pastor until a few years ago at First Baptist Church Dallas for 40 plus years. He came to that church when he was 34, the same age I was when I came to this church. And I said last week that I've got 12 years to go to put in my 30 years here. But when I read this, I thought, maybe they'll give me 40. Let me go till 74 instead of 64. Who knows? When he had been there a few years, he announced that he was going to preach through the whole Bible. Straight through. (laughs) Let me read this to you. Tell you what their response was. Not as good as yours was last week. (laughs) Soon after coming to the pastorate of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, I made an announcement that I would preach through the Bible. 
It was my first intention to go through the book much faster than I finally did. In fact, at first I did preach rapidly through the books of the Old Testament, but as the days multiplied, I found myself going slower and slower and slower. Finally, I came to the place where I preached for several years on some of the sections of the New Testament. In all, from Genesis to Revelation, I spent 17 years and 8 months going through the book. Where I left off Sunday morning, I began Sunday night. Now, we don't have a Sunday night service. So that's 34 years it took him, really, to get through the book. When I made the announcement that I was proposing to preach through the Bible, an obvious foreboding fell on part of the congregation. They were afraid that the church would be ruined. What actually happened, however, was as if heaven came down to attend church with us. As I continued to preach through the word of God, the congregation continued to grow. This church has 22,000 members now. Finally, throngs and throngs came to wait upon the word of the Lord. Many times, this is the part I thought was funny, many times... Uh, have I heard our new members in talking to one another facetiously say, you know, I joined the church in Isaiah. <laughs> another would add, I joined in Second Timothy. And to this present hour, our people hunger and thirst for the living word of the living God. We are a church built on a book. The apostles and prophets whose writings have come down to us faithfully, we believe, in a book. And if I ever depart from this book, or ever misstate anything in the book of Romans, then call me to account, because this is our only warrant to preach with authority. So, the first thing he says about the gospel of God is that it was a, a planned Gospel in verse 2. God promised it ahead of time. The second thing he says about the gospel, verse 3, is that it is concerning his son. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. Now let's just stop right there. Concerning his son. The gospel of God is about the son of God. Two things about the Son. Number one, the Son was existent before He became a man. And we know that because we've read Romans through. In chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So there it is, crystal clear. The son of God existed to be sent into the likeness of sinful flesh. God did not, in looking for a Messiah, choose a man. He chose his son to become a man. So get that very clear as we move into this book. The Son of God is pre-existent. And that's where we get the word incarnation. 
He comes into carnation, flesh. Second thing to notice is that he is God in his pre-existent form. Romans 9 verse 5. Paul is celebrating the advantages that Israel had as the chosen people. And he says, whose, that is Israel's, are the fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from whom, from this people, is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Christ is God-blessed forever. Or as Paul says in Colossians 2.9, In Christ all the fullness of deity lives or dwells bodily. In Christ all the fullness of the Father's deity not just part of it. There are not two gods here. The fullness of the one deity dwells in another person, Christ. So there are three persons in the Godhead, in the deity, not deities, and one nature, one substance, one essence, God. We are monotheists. I know that Muslims will say we're not. But we must try our best to take this mystery and be faithful to the sides that seem contradictory. One God standing forth in one essence through three persons, three centers of consciousness in one mysterious, essential Godhead. The Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is God. Paul believed that, and it comes out in various ways in the book of Romans. So the second thing he says about the gospel of God is that it concerns his Son, and then we learn from the rest of the book that the Son that he has in mind is the preexistent, divine Son of God. Now, before I give you point three, just let the weight of this rest on you. Sometimes we are so eager to get the gospel boiled down to some steps and some laws, and we must make it shareable. It is shareable, but we also at times should pause and let these pieces rest upon us with the weight that they have. The gospel is about God. It's God's gospel. God is eternal. God is infinite. God is glorious. God is the reality in the universe. And he has a son who has always existed, who has never come into being, but has always been eternally begotten by the Father's imaging forth of himself. These magnificent, unspeakably great, weighty realities are in the gospel. We must let it rest upon us. Lest we become a trivial people, a flippant people. I've been in meetings recently where I just groan that leaders feel they always have to be funny. They always have to be funny. They might be inaugurating something wonderful. They might be introducing a weighty topic. 
They might be thanking somebody for long years of service, and they've just got to constantly tell jokes. It's so sad. The gospel is a glorious and weighty thing. Slapstick and gospel don't blend. That's not in my manuscript. Point number three comes from the next verse. This Son, this great, glorious, pre-existent, divine Son, it says, was born, verse three, of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Two observations. One, This means that the Son of God became a man. That's obvious. He became a man. He's now in the line of David. But the second, more specific observation is that he was in the line of David. Now, why is that part of the gospel? Why is that good news to say that the Son of God was not just born and penetrated into our world took on the likeness of sinful flesh, like us, as a specific heir of the Davidic line. David is an Israelite king, a man after God's own heart, the great climactic king of Israel. And this this man, this God-man, is in that line. Why is that gospel? The reason is because that... Line was to bring forth the Messiah, the anointed one, who was to be the yes to all God's promises. He was to defeat all God's enemies. He was to rally all God's people, purify them with a refining fire, make them righteous and holy and pure, and then bring joy to them and peace to them and banish all ungodliness out of the universe. And there stands the king with all of his assembled people. That would be good news for those who love God. And his Messiah. Let me read you a couple of Old Testament verses to show you what Paul has in mind. Jeremiah 23, 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. That's what's happening here in verse 3. I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king, who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So what Paul has in mind here is the Son of God is clothing himself with flesh in the line of David to be that king. Let me read you another verse. Isaiah 11.10 In that day, the root of Jesse, that's David's father, the root of Jesse, the son of David, son of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples. Now, this is happening all over the world today. This is coming to pass. We'll stand as a banner of the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his place and rest will be glorious. So Christ is clothing himself with human flesh in the Davidic line that he might rally the nations to himself and establish a place of salvation and rest which will be glorious. Or as Isaiah 9, 6 says, the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. 
So verse 3 is big. It is full of fulfillment of Old Testament expectation about what the king, the Messiah, would be and what he would do. The gospel, according to Jesus Christ, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, is this. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. There's that phrase. It's not a real common phrase. But there it is, the same one that's in verse 1. He came preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this gospel. The gospel is the good news that the long-expected Messiah, King, triumphant over the enemies of God, establishers of joy and righteousness and peace, has come. Jesus says, it's come. The King has come. Believe the good news. The time is fulfilled. That's what verse 3 is announcing in line with Jesus' own preaching. Isaiah 35.10 describes it so good like this. We sang some of this earlier. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy. I like that. I like that phrase. I don't want any other kind. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them like a police officer. Pursuing you with joy. Like the old millionaire program. Most of you are way too young to remember the millionaire program. But there was a program once where somebody got a million dollars. And you had to find them, stick it in their hand. That's what God's after you to do. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will Flee away. That's verse 3. The Messiah has come. He's the king. He's the fulfillment of all the promises. He's the gatherer of all the people of God from the nations. And verse 4 now, last point. Says something that is... Devastating and exhilarating to the people who were hoping and believing for that fulfillment. Why do I say verse 4 is devastating? Read it with me. He was declared the Son of God with power. I do believe that's the right word order. Sorry about the NIV here. Um, I don't think he de- he was declared with power to be the Son of God. I think he was declared to be the Son of God with power. That's the right word order. By the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Now, that's devastating. Why? Because it implies that between verse 3... In verse 4, he died. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't get spit on and beat up and mocked 
and crucified and railed at and speared. But Jesus did. You can't get raised from the dead if you don't die. And so implicit in verse 4, between 3 and 4, is a mega catastrophe for those who were hoping. Remember those two men on the road to Emmaus? Jesus joins them. And they say, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But he wasn't. He died. Messiahs don't die. They rule. They conquer. They assemble the people of God. They destroy the enemies. They raise from the dead. Almost all the Jews of Paul's day could not handle a crucified Messiah. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That's a crucified Messiah. But to those who are being called the power of God and the wisdom of God, both Jews and Greeks. So there's this crisis created between verses 3 and 4. And we have to admit that all those promises I read you, He's coming to assemble the ransom. He's coming to gather the nations. He's coming to rule. He's coming to establish righteousness and peace and joy. And all sighing and all sorrow will be put away. We have to say, well, not yet. Not yet. He came and he fulfilled Old Testament promises. But many of those promises are still outstanding in their fullness. And he must come again. And we live between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah in this mystery period. The mystery of the kingdom, according to the Gospels, is that fulfillment happened without consummation. And so this is a very ambiguous age. We do funerals in this age. We visit hospitals in this age. We have to repent of sin every day in this age. That's what marks this age. But there's also power. There's healing. There's joy. There's forgiveness. There's love in this age. It's a mixed bag. He came and he's coming again. Let me ask two final things about this verse 4. What does according to the spirit of holiness mean? He was raised, his resurrection is according to the spirit of holiness. The commentaries go all over the place on this. There's little consensus. Let me point you in a direction. Chapter 8, verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also, Through his spirit who dwells in you. So here we have the Holy Spirit as the agent of resurrection. If the spirit dwells in you, some of you are not going to live as long as I am preaching on Romans. Some in this room will die before I'm finished with this series. Is that an awesome thought? If... You have the Holy Spirit 
Verse 11 of chapter 8 says, He will raise you from the dead. And you will understand Romans a lot better than I do before I finish it. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus is coordinate with the resurrection of his people, as verse 11 says, then it's likely that the Holy Spirit was involved in raising Jesus from the dead, just like he's involved in raising us from the dead. And I think that's exactly what Paul means in verse 4 when he says the resurrection is according to the spirit of holiness. Namely, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But that doesn't answer the question, why that strange phrase, holiness, the spirit of holiness. Nowhere else in the New Testament does that phrase occur. It's unique. The spirit of holiness. Here's my suggestion. Dealing with the dead is dirty business. When Saul wanted to deal with the dead... Samuel, he went to a witch, the witch of Endor. Mediums, diviners, sorcerers are an abomination to God. Seances are an abomination to God. If anybody in this room has been or is now involved in those cultic practices of dealing in the dead, forsake it, renounce it. It will be nothing but filth and misery and destruction to you. The Bible is very clear, don't deal in the dead. Well, here comes Paul into the Hellenistic world, saying, there was a man who was murdered as a criminal, killed, executed. And three days later, he was raised, and we worship him. I'll tell you, it does not take much imagination to imagine that a lot of people would say, yuck! Gather around a corpse, do some occultic hocus-pocus, bring in some demonic powers, and this ghost rises up out of the grave, and everybody in that little circle bows down, oh, 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 God, it's a God, it's a God, and then spread that cult throughout the whole Roman world. It's filthy. Will we have anything to do with it? Dealing in the dead is dirty business. Therefore, Paul says, this resurrection is the resurrection of an eternal Son of God who was pre-existent. And it was in accord with the working of a spirit who is not anything like demonic spirits, is not anything like an unclean spirit, is not anything like a medium or a sorcerer, but is a spirit of holiness. This was a holy moment. This was a pure moment. This was a clean moment. 
And so it seems to me that one of the things that Paul is doing here is warding off any notion that some kind of cultic, dirty, black magic stuff was going on in this origin of this new teaching. Jesus is raised from the dead. The last thing he says is that the resurrection declared the Son of God with power. Or by his resurrection, Christ was declared the Son of God with power. And I close with this. We'll move to the table. Jesus did not become the Son of God by virtue of the resurrection. He became the Son of God with power. By virtue of the resurrection, which I think means before the resurrection, the Son of God was in a limited, human, weak form. He got hungry. He got sleepy. He got mocked. He got slapped. He got misunderstood. And finally, he got crucified. But now, by virtue of a resurrection through a Holy Spirit, he moves into a new phase of his messiahship and sonship, namely power. And this brings us back now to this whole Old Testament fulfillment. A Messiah has come, and he has not only fulfilled promises in his life, but he has been raised from the dead. He does sit on a throne, the Bible says, at the Father's right hand. He is now ruling over all the nations. Jesus himself said after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go with power and make disciples of every culture and every people group because I have universal authority now that I have been raised from the dead. A name has been given to me above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, He must reign now until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what's happening right now. Jesus didn't go into some limbo of existence after the resurrection. He took his seat on an authoritative, all-ruling, sovereign throne. And yes, Satan is called the God of this age, but he's on a leash. And he's the lackey of Almighty God. He's got to get permission to do Job. He's got to get permission to do Peter. And he's got to get permission to do you. And God reigns. Jesus reigns over the world. And one day, God make it soon, he is going to stand forth from invisible lordship to visible lordship over all the nations. And he will send out his angels to the four winds, the trumpet will sound, the archangel's cry of command will be given, the elect will be gathered into one great redeemed assembly. The sheep and the goats will be separated with unbelievers banished to perdition and believers will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever and ever and ever. That's verse 3 and 4 in their gospel meaning. The gospel of God. He's come. He's suffered. He's died for sin. He's risen. He's reigning. He's coming. He is with power in this age over your life.